0: well i have a one more question on this uh, last thing of chapter 3 19 through 20. just to get you thinking so 319 says we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are in the Mm -hmm. law so that every mouth may be stopped who is in the law in that text or under the law i say in the law because the language of under the law right here in the esv is not the same as all of the under Text under law, under the elementary principles of the world, like it's it's a different preposition. Uh, so I, but but this text, who is in the law? We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are in the law. Okay, is it so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God? Okay, so if it's Jews, how do you explain the logic? Because it could be. There's, there's two different ways you could take it, right? You could say that those who are in the law are Jews only, and then you have to explain, well, what's the logic? Thanks, Josh. I think it's the same with the West of OK, so you would say that those who are in the law is all humanity, OK? Because if, if you say that, then it's really easy to explain the logic. <laughs> you know, we know that whatever the law says, it says to everybody, so that everybody's mouth is shot and the whole world is held accountable before God. But it could be that those who are in the law are only Jews, and then you'd have to explain the logic. So, do you really think it's only Jews? No, Gentiles. Okay. Does anybody think it's only Jews? Because that's fine. There are ways to explain the logic, but it just makes you think. You know, if the law condemns the Jew, with the result that everybody's mouth is shut, like what's the what's the logic? Only the Jews are condemned by the law so that everybody is now condemned. Why? The the ways this is explained by those who hold that are are things like the law condemns the Jews who are the best of us. And if it condemns the best of us, then certainly all of us are condemned, You know, something like that. Or he could just be saying, look, we all know the Gentiles are bad. (laughs) We all agree on that. So if the law condemns the Jews, then that means everybody's guilty, okay? I tend toward the other thing, which is like that everybody's within the law, in the end, like that the law speaks to those who are in the law, and that includes everybody, and uh, so everybody's gonna be held guilty. But you can read my, whatever, that's what I was writing about, you know, on that thing, so I, for that dissertation, so you can see if you're convinced or not. You'll see that in the the section you read. All right, now chapter 3, 21, we come to the heart of the letter, Okay, just listen to what's been said about this uh, section. Is okay, so a 321 to 26. Uh, one of my favorite commentators, Cranefield, he says, we can, we can say that this is the center and heart of the whole letter, okay, this, this paragraph. Martin Luther said, this is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible this paragraph Luther says this isn't just the center of this letter this is the center of the whole Bible okay Leon Morris good Australian guy he says this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written okay so I wanted to ask you why People would say stuff like that about that paragraph, 321 to 26. Let's let let's actually read it, okay? So let's read it. Who wants to read it? 321 to 26. Okay. Did you just read the most important paragraph ever written? You guess so? Why would someone say things like that? This is the... Most important paragraph in Romans, this is the most important paragraph in the Bible, this is the most important paragraph ever written. And these aren't like no-name people, you know, saying this. These are some like really good scholars, you know, who, who said this. Why do they say that about this paragraph? What do you think? Because of the, what? Because it tells us about the, it tells us the gospel, okay? This answers the question and our tensions about the righteousness of God in both judging and in saving. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. He did horrible stuff, yeah. Yeah. He was forgiven. Yeah, and this this text answers those tensions, resolves those tensions. Now we could say, you know, there's a lot of great gospel things in here, but of course there's a lot of great gospel things in a lot of texts. What is it about this paragraph specifically that makes people say this about it? I think part of it is how concise it is. Okay? Like it says so much in such few verses. Okay? So just think of like, really important theological vocabulary just in these six verses. What, what do you see? Okay. Sin, justification, grace, redemption, propitiation, faith. Jesus is the Messiah, that all the scriptures, all the law and the prophets were talking about this, righteousness of God, divine forbearance, passing over of former sins, all of these things, the glory of God, falling short of the glory of God, all of these things in one paragraph. That's, I think, what sets it apart from the other texts, you know, in the the Bible, is like in one succinct paragraph. Paul ties together all of this and really ties together the whole Bible in a lot of ways in one paragraph. All right, so let's. So we've been working through some of the most sobering and challenging chapters lately, you know, as Paul has taken two and a half chapters to talk about the bad news that God's wrath will fall on all who are unrighteous and ungodly and that all people are unrighteous and ungodly. All that leads to the conclusion that we just read in 319 to 20 about how God's law speaks exposes our hearts, condemns us for what we've all done. Re- the result is every mouth is shut, the whole world is held guilty before God. I think Paul really wants us to imagine that. Imagine every individual from every ethnicity standing before God, guilty at the judgment without a word to say in response. But then with just two words, what uh, I think Louis, Lloyd-Jones said were two sweetest words in all the Bible, you know, everything changes in Romans. The, the words, but now. But now something has changed. Something new has happened, but now there's hope. Not in ourselves, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of God. After two and a half chapters of bad news, it's easy to forget that the letter is actually about good news. You know, like Paul's theme verses in one sixteen to 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in the gospel, the gospel is God's power to save. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is, re, is revealed. Like, Paul really is writing this letter to talk about good news, but after you kind of wade through two and a half chapters of bad news, you kind of forget that. And then all of a sudden, like it comes back in 321. Uh, this is what Paul actually wants to talk about in the letter. But before he got to the good news, he wanted us to see in detail the badness of the bad news. See how bad off we are. So we see how good the goodness of the gospel really is. So, so let's think through the text. We're going to go through it line by line. So we've got 321. 321. I think of this next uh, section, basically, or our segment here as like public gospel meditation. Okay, I just want to like think, talk about what's in the most important paragraph ever written. Okay? So it says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we're all unrighteous before God justly condemned for our sin, no ability to change our situation, but now God has revealed his righteousness, which is to say God has come to our rescue, the rescue of the unrighteous. But Paul says that, that the righteousness of God that has been revealed is apart from the law. What does that mean? So on the one hand he says it's apart from the law, but it's also been testified to by the law in the prophets so how do you understand that those are two really important claims for paul paul's theology so first of all, what does he mean when he says the righteousness of god has been revealed apart from the law of moses what's the point of saying that yeah okay yeah it's certainly not something that you're going to acquire through keeping the law i think at, i think at minimum this means god's plan to rescue us is not through the law of moses that is not his plan okay and if you look at just the previous verse verse 20 you see that for by works of the law no human being will be justified in god's sight no one will ever get right with god through keeping the law there's no hope in our own works and there's no path to life through law keeping instead as verse 20 also says What the law actually brings is not life and righteousness but the knowledge of sin but when paul says the righteousness of god has been revealed apart from the law i think he's getting at something else as well something that's never far away in romans and that is that the god's saving work is for more than jews let me think about it if god's saving work because his his righteousness often in the old testament is Paralleled with him like coming to the rescue. If God's saving, rescuing work is exclusively tied to the law of Moses, then in order to get the benefits of what God has done, what would you have to do? You would have to be connected to the law of Moses. In other words, you would need to be an ethnic Jew or you would need to try to become one. Otherwise, if you couldn't get access to the benefits of what God has done in Jesus. But what God has done in Jesus is not for the Jews only. It is for the Gentiles too. The God of Israel has come to save not just Israel, but through Israel's Messiah, God's come to save the world. And we'll see more of that in a minute. But, but then I, w- I want to look at, verse, at the second half of verse twenty two or 21, and then if you have a question, so, so look at what Paul says. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, but then he adds right away, even though the law and the prophets were always bearing witness to it so on the one hand god's plan to rescue is not through the law of moses but on the other hand don't think that what god has now done in jesus wasn't talked about beforehand in the law and in the prophets now the law and the prophets which is his way of saying the whole testament has been bearing witness to predicting prophesying that god would one day do what he has now done in jesus and if we're talking about direct prophecies in the old testament what would we think of we could think of god's promise to raise up an offspring to crush satan's head or god's promise to bless the world through abraham's line or god's promise to raise up a king from David's line to rule the world, or God's promise of a new covenant in the prophets in which he would cleanse people fully and finally from their sins, grant them new circumcised hearts that are actually alive towards God, God's promise to give us the Holy Spirit. But it goes beyond direct prophecies, too. We could talk about how the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was pointing ahead to what God would do for us in Jesus. We could talk about the need for blood to atone for our sins. We could talk about the feast and the special days. We could talk about events like the flood or the exodus, how they foreshadowed a greater judgment and a greater deliverance. We could talk about circumcision or the priesthood or the tabernacle or the temple and about how all these things were like signs pointing us ahead to what God would do in Jesus. This is what Paul's saying. God has come to our rescue and it's not tied to the law of Moses, but don't think this is not what the law and the the prophets were telling you about. You don't have to be connected to the law of Moses to get this, but the law and the prophets were always pointing you to this both through direct prophecies as well as through the stories the events the systems it was all pointing you to what god would do in jesus he's claiming that the entire old testament bears witness to the fact that god would one day do in jesus what he has now done okay now you have a question yeah i was just wondering you said uh use the word revealed manifested. yeah I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, that's probably why I'm saying that. I don't know why I'm saying that, but I think that's it. Sounds really good to make that the reason why I'm saying that. So let's, <laughs> let's. Uh, um, I'm, Oh no, I don't think so. Apocalyptic uh, is uh, in uh, the other ones. Sorry, but it sounded good. Yeah, it's it's there's there's there's, there's synonyms. Yeah, I mean there's synonyms. Yeah, uh, and I think manifested just sounds more highfalutin. <laughs> that sounds uh, uh, more academic than revealed. And so I, I uh, but yeah, I, it's the same thing. All right. So this leads then to the question, as we, as we think through the text, uh, of how what God has provided actually becomes ours. Okay. Being right with God is now possible because of Jesus, but it's not automatic. How does what Christ has won actually become ours? That's what verse 22 tells you about. It says, the righteousness of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the gospel is an announcement that God has come to our rescue through his son Jesus and that he is today offering right standing, free of charge, to anybody who wants it through Jesus. This is really good news. But how does that become ours? The answer is there in that verse. The righteousness of God comes to people through faith in Jesus Christ, and this comes to all people who will have faith in Jesus Christ. The NIV says the right, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the last two and a half chapters has shown us nobody's righteous before God, not even one. And more than that, there's no hope of getting right with God on our own we cannot undo what we've already done but yet there is still hope of getting right with God and that is the good news but that hope isn't in you your only hope is in Jesus you can have right standing with God by simply believing in Jesus Christ this was captured well in the Protestant Reformation that justification or being declared right with God comes through what through faith alone in Christ alone The gospel is an announcement that God has come to our rescue. And the gospel also contains uh, a call. It's more than just an announcement. We go out and we announce the good news. We we say what the good news is. But the gospel is more than just announcing that God has done something. The gospel also contains a call to people. To respond to it. To personally respond turn away from our sins and from trusting in ourselves or in our own works or in anybody else or any other God and to put our trust completely and solely in Jesus. And the gospel also contains a promise that if you'll do that, what will happen to you? You will be justified. And as you keep reading, the good news keeps getting better. Why? Because this promise is extended to how many people to all people who want it, to all people who will believe. The righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for all who believe. Why? Because there is no distinction. Why not? Because we've all sinned. That has been the point of the last, like, two and a half chapters. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's uh, we're all in the we're all in the same boat, all in the same predicament, all in the same plight there's no distinction because we 've all sinned, we all fall short of god's glory <laughs> it's interesting to me I usually we usually use romans three twenty three to try to prove to people that like all people are sinners, which is fine like it's a fine verse for that. but paul's already proved that that's not quite his point here. His point is there's no distinction because we 've all sinned, and so like, it, his, his point here is actually something positive. Like, there's no distinction between us. We're all, we've all sinned. We've already seen that. Therefore, we can all, and that's where he's going to go in the text. We've all sinned. We've all failed to give God the glory that he deserves. This is the fundamental sin of human beings. Though we knew who God was, we didn't want to glorify him or honor him or give him thanks. But I think when Paul says we've all fallen short of God's glory, you might also think back even to the garden. How the human race has fallen from the incredible position that we had in the garden. Like we were once sinless image bearers of God, but we fell and we've been falling ever since. We've never been able to reclaim what we lost. That's bad news, but the bad news is not Paul's emphasis here. He's just reminding us that we're all the same. We're all equal because we've all sinned. But what does that mean? It means that salvation isn't far from any of us because God sent his son Jesus here for sinners. Jesus did not come here to save the righteous or to heal the healthy. Jesus came here for the sick, for the unrighteous. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so if that's you, salvation isn't far from you. It's right here in front of you. And that's where the text takes us. Verse 22, you keep reading this time, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift since we're all in the same boat in the same plight the same predicament the promise of right standing is for all of us because it does not depend on us at all justification or being declared right with god is through grace alone it's not a status you earn it's a free gift you receive from God. And I just want to think about that. This is one of the most helpful ways to explain the gospel to someone is to is to talk about right standing with God as a gift. If it's a gift, what does that mean? what can you what can you infer from that? like if because Paul loves to use the language of gift. There's a whole book recently written about the gift of, you know from Paul's uh, teaching, like, this is a huge thing in Paul, and it's a really helpful thing to explain. Like, people will understand this. If right standing with God is a gift, then what? It's not earned. You can't earn it. You don't need to earn it. You can't earn it. It's not wages that you get, it's a gift. What else? What's that? Yeah, there's no boasting about it. Yeah, that's going to be one of his implications of this. If it's a gift given to you, what are you going to boast about? What else? Okay, th- this, is, this is a gift only found in Jesus. If it's a gift, it didn't, it didn't cost you anything. But it did cost someone else. If it's a gift, you know, that probably means that the person who bought it and paid for it for you actually cares about you and really wants you to have it. And I think if it's a gift, then what do you need to do? You need to receive it. That's what you need to do. You don't buy it. You need to receive it. You need to take it, to lay hold of it. And how do we do that? How do we take hold of the gift? by faith, by faith, right? And this is where, I mean, this text becomes like a foundational to the Protestant Reformation because this justification is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is really, really good news. Now, I want to pause just for a minute. I want us to think about um, difficult questions for religions to answer. So what are some tough questions people find out you're a religious religious guy or religious girl and, is, and they find out you're maybe a christian could they ask you some hard questions sure could you ask other people hard questions who are religious sure what are your tough questions that we that you've been asked or that you could ask somebody else if you really wanted to make them feel uncomfortable how can you be sure this thing's from God right other people say they got a book you got a book how do you know it's from God how do you know theirs isn't from God tough questions okay what else the, the be... yeah why is there evil I mean, isn't your don't you say your God's powerful don't you say your God's good this world stinks there's all kinds of problems here Like why is there evil in the world yeah sure Very good, very good. Other things? Hard things? Why would a loving God send people to hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so if God loves people, why would he send anybody to whatever place of judgment you talk about in your religion? Yeah. Yeah. Is God fair? It doesn't seem like he gives everybody the same opportunities. You know, he gives this to one person, doesn't do that for another person. Yeah, why doesn't he just show up more? You know, and like, just come up somewhere. yeah, it's an audible, uh, yep, yep, yep. I mean, I talk, I've prayed, and I don't see anything. Nothing happens. Okay, you you, you can think of all kinds of uh, tough questions. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, some of the main ones, of course, are like how you explain the problem of evil or suffering in the world, how you know if your book's the only only right one, that kind of thing. But most of these questions, people who are within a religion, and like if you like accept kind of their worldview, they'll give you an answer that makes some sense to them. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but like if, like if I ask a Muslim, you know, wh- how can God be loving and send people to hell? I would imagine this Muslim friend will be able to give me an answer that makes some sense. To him. I'm not saying it's the right answer. just like there's some answer for that question, okay? Um, why is there suffering in the world? There's probably some answer that that religion has for that, okay? Uh, but I think there's a question that I have not really found a good answer for in uh, from other Religions, And I think I've actually asked this to various Muslim friends. Maybe I know some of you have Muslim background. But, but question like, how can God forgive people and still be just? Right? Like I, I think that that is a question a lot of people haven't really thought about and is really hard to reconcile in a lot of religions. Okay, because, and the thing is, every, every person who is religious at all wants to have a God who's merciful, right? I mean, like, who wants to, who wants to have a God who doesn't show any mercy? That, that would probably. And who wants a God that they would say is unjust? You know, I think they'd be finding some other God. If they, if, you know, these are like two things that are like true of every, every God in every religion, that, that God is both merciful and just, but like pressing people on that. I think can be a very helpful thing to do, and and I think this is a tension, like we've been talking about, in the Bible itself, about the justice and mercy of God. In fact, I I think you can go back uh, through the Old Testament again and just realize, like, this is really a tension in the Old Testament scriptures, a tension that you could feel. Uh, I mean, you could go back to stories like just think about Abraham. So we know Genesis 15, 6. We've been talking about it. Paul's about to talk about it a lot in Romans 4. What does it say? Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abram trusted the Lord's promise, and and God counted him as righteous. But have you ever thought about whether that was right for God to do that? I mean, here's what I mean. If you know anything about Abraham, you know that from the time he was 75... Years of age, though he certainly wasn't perfect, he did faithfully follow the Lord. Right? That's the story. <laughs> but, but what does that mean? From the time he was 75, he faithfully followed the Lord. Up until then, he didn't... Yeah, I mean that means that for 74. Anybody here, 74? I'm not 74. For 74 years, he was an idolater. He was an ungodly man for much longer than most of us have been alive. And yet, when he believed in the Lord's promise, the Lord counted him as righteous. The Lord forgave him, credited him with right standing. Did Abraham deserve that? No. This was God's mercy to him. Was this right? Was this just for a God to do that? Have you ever thought about that, all right? This is far from the only place in the Old Testament where this question is raised. In fact, I, I think one of the central texts of the whole Old Testament is in Exodus 34, uh, certainly one of the most pas- important passages in the Bible, story where Moses is pleading with God for God to, sh- to reveal himself more clearly to Moses. Like this is right after the, the golden calf thing moses is like realizing wow this is a really tough job i've got i need to know god better (laughs) to do this so he's like pleading with god for god to reveal himself to him and so god says i will do that so he puts moses in the cleft of the rock passes before him and he proclaims to moses exactly who he is so the thing about this text is that a lot of texts in the bible are people telling us about god which is great i'm not discounting that but this text is interesting because this is God telling us about God. Like this, this is why this text becomes so central in the Bible and is used all over the place in the Old Testament. Does it make sense? Like, Lots of texts are like God is merciful, God is just, but this is God telling you who God is, telling Moses this. And what does God say? This is in Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud, stood with Moses there, and the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses, and the Lord proclaimed this. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. All right, he goes on. But right there at the end. When God himself says who he is and what he's like, he says, I'm merciful, loving, forgiving, but I am also a God who will never clear the guilty. I'm a God who forgives, but who does not let the guilty go. And you're like, what does that even mean to be a God who forgives people for all the bad stuff they do and then doesn't let the guilty go? How can both of those things be true at the same time? We go on and on. We haven't even mentioned how God forgave David for the incredibly heinous sins that he did. I mean, I just read, I just read with my kids the other day. Uh, I have, you should get the, inter- if you wanna read in English uh, with, with, with kids, International Children's Bible is so good, I love it. I read it with my kids a lot at night. It's, it's a real translation of the Bible at like a second grade reading level, which is really hard to do, by the way. It's, just, it's really well done. So I've been reading through this. My daughter had wanted me to, to read the stories of David because she didn't know really where they were She had heard stories about David, but she's like, when she reads the Psalms, she knows they're by David, but they're like, not the stories, you know? So we've been reading, you know, from 1 Samuel, we're now like, well into 2 Samuel. And some of this has been incredibly moving, because they don't actually know these stories. And for like a week, I was uh, just thinking about what this was going to be like to read the story of David and Bathsheba, and then to read about what David did to Uriah. Like my kids had no idea that was coming and it was so like gripping to think like this guy who is like the high point of the bible at that point he commits adultery and then he kills a guy who is so faithful to him like he tried to trick uriah but uriah wouldn't because of his faithfulness to david and so he kills him this is like jarring you know it's really affected me like reading it like this to my to my kids and yet God forgives David for that like how could God do that in, in fact in Psalm 51 which we did look at earlier David says in the psalm you know he says deliver me from blood guiltiness oh God I'll, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness we, we, saw, we saw that earlier but he also says you don't want burnt offerings or sacrifices or else I would give them to you I mean, because you think about it in the law code, like what, was, what could you offer for adultery? Nothing. What could you offer for murder? There were no sacrifices for those things. The only penalty for those things was death. He says, you don't want, you don't want that, or I would give it to you. And then he says, but the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. Lord, I don't think you'll despise those, you know? And he throws himself in the mercy of God and God forgives him. Was that right? Was that just? Uriah had a family. Bathsheba had a family. God just puts away David's sin. And I think what's really interesting is the Old Testament (coughs) never fully answers this I think that the servant song like in Isaiah 53 gets gets close maybe the closest point is Leviticus 16 with a day of atonement you, I mean you can't read the Leviticus and miss how sin deserves death blood has to be shed but what you find is that God provided a way for human sins to be dealt with through the shedding of the blood of innocent animals instead of our blood We see that in Leviticus, like the Old Testament gives us signs, gives us hints, but it doesn't fully resolve this, because even in the day of atonement, once a year, the people of Israel gather for the only time all year, the high priest goes into the tabernacle, goes behind the inner curtain into the Holy of Holies, the most private place on earth. He goes in there with the blood of the goat that he killed. He puts that blood on the mercy seat. Then he He'd go to a second goat, the, sca- the scapegoat, and lay the sins of all the people on it, and they send it away, never to return. On that day, in that way, the people would be cleansed from all their sins. I think that's the closest we get in the Old Testament to resolution, to how God can forgive people and be right to do it. But even in those stories, you still ask, is that really enough? I mean, is the blood of an innocent animal a sufficient substitute for somebody like me? Now, I want to pick up back in Romans 3, verse, verse 22. Okay? So 322, and I want to finish the paragraph. It says, for there is no distinction. It's at the end of 22. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you catch the contrast? We're justified by his grace as a gift. That is all focused on free of cost, right? By his grace as a gift. This is entirely free to us. We don't pay a thing for this. It cost us nothing. But that doesn't mean it didn't cost someone something. And that's what the contrast is in the text. We're justified by his grace as a gift from him through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What cost us nothing costs God dearly. We can only be right with God because of the redeeming work of Jesus. Now what's Paul getting at when he talks about redemption? What do you think? What what's when you hear redemption, what what comes to mind? What what's that? Exodus, yes. So so a release from slavery, uh maybe even through the blood of the lamb. Anything else? What's that? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Boaz and Ruth. Sorry, I, just, I couldn't understand. Yep. <clears throat> okay, so you think of these stories of like a kinsman redeemer, things like that. Okay, so a couple things. Redemption. Uh, now, typically, <coughs> redemption has to do with being set free from slavery. Like, that, that's often in the background, is slavery is in the background of redemption language. The people who need to be redeemed are those who are in slavery. God redeems us through Christ from slavery to sin and death. But, uh, but also when Paul talks about being redeemed from slavery, I think that always reminds us of a day long ago when God redeemed his people from slavery. Like New Testament use of redemption language probably echoes the Exodus. Redemption in Christ reminds us of the great day when God redeemed his people out of Egypt and set them free. That was done through the blood of the Passover lamb, which was pointing ahead to the day when God would do something even greater. When God would deliver his people from an even stronger enemy through an even better lamb. But then, when you put these things together, that we're declared right with God by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, Paul's highlighting, perhaps more than anything else, that what is given free of charge to us costs God dearly. Grace isn't cheap. Right standing with God isn't cheap. It costs us more than we could ever pay. The price of our righteousness. Is the redeeming blood of Jesus. And to see that this is what Paul is emphasizing, look at the text again. Verse 22 again at the end. For there's no distinction, for we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That is the cost of our redemption. That's how it happened. That is when it happened. God put Christ forward publicly to shed his blood as a propitiation for us. Now, what does that mean? Particularly the word propitiation, sometimes translated as an atoning sacrifice. When Paul says God God put Christ forward as a propitiation, what's he getting at? What do you think? What is the main idea of propitiation? Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Doing something with God's wrath. Okay? <clears throat> that's, that's connected to the idea of propitiation. Appeasing of God's wrath, turning it away, something to do with God's wrath. Okay? Yep? Paying for a debt. For a debt. Okay. Propitiation is always think, about the wrath of God. Okay? It, it has something to do with that. If God, and, and in Romans, that makes sense, right? If God's wrath is falling and will fall on every person who's ungodly and unrighteous, and all of us are ungodly and unrighteous, then what hope is there for any of us? It's only in this, that someone better than us might bear the wrath of God for us. And that is what the word propitiation or atoning sacrifice is about. Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins and to turn God's wrath away from us. This is the heart of the gospel. And I don't want to move on too quickly from it. I want, to, I want us to think about it. God put Christ forward publicly as a propitiation by his blood. Now the word in the, the, in the ESV translated propitiation or in other translations atoning sacrifice <clears throat> is a good translation because it gets at the idea well. But the downside of it is it probably causes us to miss an Old Testament connection there. And here's what I mean, that word, that very same word is used throughout the law of Moses. In fact, it shows up 20 times in the law of Moses. And in every one of the 20 uses, it always refers to one thing. Do you know what it is? It always refers to the mercy seat. In every text in the law code, the same word hillasteran always refers to the seat, to the mercy seat. This is why one translation in the Net Bible translates the verse as saying God publicly display, displayed Jesus at his death as the mercy seat. But no matter how we translate the word, what Paul's getting at is this amazing truth that Jesus' death on the cross is both the sacrifice for our sins that turns God's wrath away and the place where sinners and God can meet. And be reconciled and so just think about this just meditate on this for a minute okay God put Christ forward as the mercy seat or propitiation first note God did that publicly God put Christ forward whereas other translations say God publicly displayed him the cross was a public event Jesus was exposed publicly he was shamed publicly before people he hung publicly on the cross the mercy seat in the old covenant was the most secretive and private place on earth only the high priest could enter there and he could only do it one time a year but God put Jesus forward publicly so everyone could see it Second, notice that God did this. God put the sacrifice forward. This is in contrast to all other gods and all other religions where it is always the worshipers who have to bring the sacrifice. The worshipers have to produce the thing to appease the God. But that is not the way it is with biblical Christianity. God took the initiative to come after us and to provide the sacrifice for us then you notice the cost he says this is by his blood the blood of the sacrifice had to be shed the blood had to be brought into the mercy seat as peter says really well in first peter we were not ransomed with corruptible things like silver or gold but rather we were ransomed with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot this is what it took to turn God's wrath away from us and this was all done for us why why did God do that it was because God loved us God sent his son because he loved us Christ went to the cross because he loved us but then notice the, the, the final phrase of that line in Romans 3 it says this is to be received by faith this is what we keep seeing What God has done for us in Jesus, it's there. Being right with God is now possible, but it is not automatic. How does it become ours? By faith. Salvation is a gift from God. If it's a gift, it means we didn't earn it, we can't buy it, we simply need to receive it, we need to take hold of it, and how do we do that? We do that by faith. We receive the gift of righteousness by faith, by trusting completely in Christ. But this is not where the text ends. Paul doesn't actually end it by pointing out what God's work does for us. Paul closes the paragraph by pointing out what God's work does for God. And so that's where I want to close this discussion. Look at verse 25, verse the, the, like the third part of it. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This was to show his righteousness at the present time. You catch that? The way God has worked through Jesus was specifically to show us something about God. To do something for God. Everything God has done was to display his righteousness. And I think here especially to display his justice. Why did God need to show his righteousness? What was it that brought God's divine justice into question? Look at the end of verse 25 again. It was because in God's divine forbearance or patience, he had been passing over former sins. Whose sins? David's sins. He passed over the sins of the Old Testament saints, people like Abraham, Moses, David, and many others god truly forgave them for what they did and god had done that for them even though there was no sufficient payment for any of their sins the animal sacrifices they had offered were good but not good enough yet god forgave them in the case of david god forgave david of things that there weren't even sacrifices for for the sin of adultery for the sin of murder and yet god still truly forgave david for what he did How could God forgive them and still be righteous? Wasn't God clearing the guilty unjustly? And the answer is what? No. Why not? It's because God forgave them and passed over their sins on the basis of what? On the basis of what God would do one day for them in his own son Jesus. God would offer the sacrifice for them that they could not offer. God was just to forgive those in the Old Testament, not because of what they did or what God knew they would do for him. And God forgave them because he knew what he would do for them. But not just that, look at verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The specific way that God has worked to save us has been to display his justice now. It has been to demonstrate that God is not unjust when he declares us just. Now God is just to do this because Jesus the just died in the place of the unjust. The gospel unveils not only the mercy of God, the gospel unveils the justice of God in showing us that mercy. As Paul says, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So as just to think of day, a lot of today, about the wrath of God. Thinking back to what we've seen, God pour God's wrath is already being unveiled. It's already fallen as God gives people over to themselves. Romans 2 also talks about the day when God will, will pour out his wrath eventually on the day of wrath. But this text, I think, drives us back to the greatest demonstration of God's wrath, which has already happened. When God poured out his wrath on his own son for us and I want to I want to read I want to go back to Psalm 106 as it just a way to think about this maybe look at it from a little bit different different light I think it sheds light on our text and we'll take a break go back to Psalm 106 and this is a text that I think Romans has shed light on this text and this text has shed r- light on Romans for me Psalm 106 And uh, we could read a lot of it, but well, let's just pick up in verse 19. Psalm 106, verse 19, talking about about Israel. It says, they made a calf in Horeb. What is that? That's the golden calf on Sinai. And they worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. One just works in the land of Ham, awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said, he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. I look at a text like that. This is like the story of Romans 1 through 3 but the story of Romans is even better. <laughs> yeah. Humanity exchanging the glory of God, stirring up God's righteous anger, and he would have destroyed us had not Jesus stood in the breach to turn away the wrath of God from us. This is what Romans 1 I think the 326 is really about. It's about like what we see here done even greater But what Moses did only turned away God's wrath for a while. That first generation fell in the wilderness. But for us, Jesus fully and finally deals with the wrath of God so that we will never taste it. This is really good news.